It's great to see you this morning. Today, I want to start off. We have a um, presentation that we talked about last week. We're in a series called The Foundations of Marriage. And so we started off last week by saying that marriage, it takes three. It takes you, it takes your spouse, and it takes God in the mix in order to have the proper foundation for a healthy, vibrant marriage the way God has called it to be. Now, today, what we're talking about is being all in. Have you ever seen somebody who's all in? Or maybe it's been one of those games in which you were playing cards with your friends and you went all in. You ever been all in? All right. Now, when my kids were growing up and as they were, uh, my kids are growing up, they're still growing up. I got very small kids still, some of them, Um, but they were learning to swim and they were learning to be around the water. I want to talk to you and kind of use this to help us understand being all in. Now, my first daughter, um, she loves, she's now in the service. And so she's, she's beautiful 12 and she's so excited every time I tell stories about her. But uh, anyway, when she was uh, just little, she could not stand the water. She would scream. She would howl. I mean, she would get wet her bath time. She hated the water. And so when it came time for actual um, swimming, she liked to get dressed up, but she did not want to actually ever go under the water. So it was one of those things. It took us a while to get her to really where she wanted to swim or be around swimming. Now, my third daughter, she, man, she loved to dress up. And she liked the water as long as it never came above her knees. So she would play in the water. She would kick the water. She would stay on the stairs. As long as she was in the shallow end, she was great. It was a lot of fun for her. She liked the water, but not to go too deep. If you ever grabbed her, started holding her, and you started walking where it went deeper and deeper, as the water hit the knees, she grabbed on tighter around your neck. And then as you got up to where it hit her belly and as it hit her chest, all of a sudden her fingernails went into the back of your neck and she just screamed and she would, it scared her to death. Now, my second daughter and my son, they have no clue what it means to have fear. You ever had one of those kids? No fear, no fear of consequences. It just didn't matter to them. So they saw water and what they simply did was this, water, They would walk right off and they couldn't swim. They had no ability to swim, but they would fall right into the water. And so me being the gracious dad that I am, I decided I would help them understand the consequences of water. If you step off into a pool and you cannot swim, there's a problem, right? So you let them go under the water and you're like, that'll teach you. So you kind of sit back and you just let them go under. And then just before long, I mean, it's not real long, but you grab them by the neck, you know, and you yank them up and say, you see? And then they get this big grin and they started smiling like they enjoyed it. (laughs) You're going, really? And you watch them because within five seconds after spitting the water out, what do they do? Right back off the edge and fell right back in. And so this time I'm going, I'll show you. And I'd let them stay under for a longer time. And so you let them stay under and their eyes get big. I still have the pictures in my mind. Their eyes are big and I'm going, that might be long enough, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so you grab them and you yank them back out and now they start coughing. <clears throat> and you're like, you see, you can't swim. You have to be more careful. And you try to give those great lectures you know, to a two-year-old and they just don't hear it at all. And so the next thing you know, within 10 minutes, what are they doing? 
you're diving off again. So we began to understand that there's certain kids that listen and learn and other kids that live and learn. And my, those two, my second daughter and my son were the type that had to try it out on their own. So we started putting the, the life jackets on and when they got into the pool, then they had that automatically, if we got around water, they had to have the life jackets on. Why? Because they were all in. Now here's the principle and here's what we're gonna be talking about today. Marriage. It's gonna require you, it's gonna require your spouse to be all in. All in. It will not work if you are all in and your spouse is not. It will not work if you think that, okay, I'm all in right here at the beginning, but now that we're five years in, I don't have to really worry about it. Now that we're 10 years in, I don't have to really worry about it. As you turn to Ephesians 5, I want to make sure I lay out for us today what's going to be happening. In Ephesians 5, we have laid some foundational work, which we talked about last week, that Paul is assuming that you understand and that you've already implemented into your life and into your marriage. Now what Paul is going to do is in Ephesians 5, quite often the way we handle Ephesians 5 is this. We go to Ephesians 5 and we say, Okay, here's the wife's responsibility, and now here's the husband's responsibility. And that's how we talk and how we approach it. And I've even been guilty of doing the same thing in the teaching of it. In Ephesians 5, we just go immediately to, because we want to know what the rules are and the duties are of the wife. We want to know what the rules are and the duty of the husband is. But quite often, we don't ever get to the why. Why should you be doing this? What benefit does it give us? And really, what is going on behind the duties and the obligation and even how we love. Now, next week I will talk about love. Next week I will talk about the way in which we love, the way a wife loves her husband and the way the husband loves his wife. But before we get there, there has to be this principle of being all in. And I think you're going to catch it and understand it in just a minute. If you have your Bibles, please stand now for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, go all the way down, if you would, to verse 22. I'm going to read two verses, and then we're going to start diving into it today. You ready? The Bible says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, gave himself up for her. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time and I thank you for the chance together with other believers. What an incredible opportunity to sing praises to the great God, to, to be able to sing and, and together to, to be able to celebrate what you have done in our lives, that truly Jesus is the name above every name, that Jesus is the name that is the only way in which we find salvation. And we want to say thank you, Jesus, for giving that to us today. And now as we come into the time to hear from you. Heavenly Father, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit will be present in this room and would have freedom to move and to work. You promise that you're already here when two or more are gathered in your name. But God, we're not just wanting your presence. We're wanting you to move and to speak into our lives today. God, I pray that you'd give us the ears to hear. And then, Father, would you give us the courage to apply to our lives what we need. And in Jesus' precious, precious name, we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. All right. 
So let me make sure you don't tune out on me. If you are not married, this is extremely important for you. This is a point in the message where I think you need to make sure you dial in and tune in because in just a few moments, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna lay out some very important things that's gonna be counter-cultural. That's gonna be opposite of what you're hearing in the media, which is opposite of what you hear in books, which is opposite of what you actually hear from even your friends. And if you get this principle correct, I promise you, by the authority of God's word, that it will radically transform your dating relationships and in your future marriages. Some of you in here going, hey, Heath, you know, pastor, I've, I, I've been married for a long time. You know, we're good. We got it all covered. We're, we're okay. We're still married. Great. I'm glad you're still married. But here's what's going to happen today. I'm going to lay out some principles for you. Because sometimes what happens in marriage, the longer we stay married, we actually begin to grow distant from each other. There begins to be a gap that develops in our relationship and a gap that develops in such a way that we actually look across the room and say, I love her or I love him, but I don't really like them anymore. And I want to make sure that we understand this principle today because what you need and what I need in our marriages is this principle to be all in. You see, we started off with Ephesians 5, and I want to be very careful. I am not going just to the ladies now, and I'm not going just to the guys, but there's two words given. One is for the ladies to actually submit. Ladies, if you're going to submit to your husband, which means to rank higher than yourself, to actually come underneath the authority of your husband in leadership in the home, let me be honest with you. Can you do that without the Spirit of God? The answer is no. Can you do that naturally? The answer is no. It will take you to be all in. Men, the Bible actually tells you to love your wife, to interact with her, to actually be a man who is willing to sacrifice himself to actually say my dreams, my visions, my goals, my plans for my life actually come second to my wife. My hobbies, my everything, I will sacrifice for her. Men, can you live like that on your own power? The answer is no. You cannot do it. See, ladies, for you to actually go into the next realm next week when we talk about what it means to love, you are gonna to have to be all in. Men, if you're gonna actually begin to live the way God has called you to live in your marriage relationship, you have to be all in. Now, Paul does something pretty amazing. He lays this out, and this is an overall principle of being all in. Now, Paul does something very interesting. Remember, Paul is a master theologian. He knows the scripture inside and out. He understands the Old Testament and he always wants to bring in your theology to help you understand what the word of God is teaching you so that you actually behave and live differently. And in Ephesians 5, he does something remarkable. Go all the way down to the, ne the last part of this and here's what he says in verse 31. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father, his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. When a Jewish scholar would quote a passage or would quote a part of a verse, 
He intended for the audience to know the entire context and to know what was really going on. And what Paul does here is he is making a clear tie that in order for you to live the way women you're supposed to live, men the way you're supposed to live, it's going to go back to the principles of Genesis chapter 1. And he ties this together. So here's what I need to do. In order for me to develop this well and for you to understand what it really means to be all in, we have to now go to Genesis chapter 1. Please turn over to Genesis chapter 1 with me. All right. Genesis chapter 1. This is an incredible part of the book, this Bible, because in Genesis 1, we are told how God begins to have fun. In the beginning, God created God begins to create the worlds and he begins to fling stars into their space. He begins to put planets in orbits around the stars. He begins to turn complete galaxies and he's just having fun. He's just throwing out mountains, throwing out rivers, throwing trees in their places. And he's creating fun looking animals like giraffes with long necks. And he's having fun with zebras. I think I want to make some stripes on that one. Then he begins to make a hippopotamus, which is huge. And he's just having fun. He creates this world and he says, I want some animals to be in the sky. So he makes birds and they start flying. He's creating all kinds of color. And he's just painting the world and the galaxies just for fun. For his good pleasure is what the Bible says. And in Genesis chapter 1, we come to a passage Go down to verse 26, and here's what the Word of God says. Then God said, let us make man. Now, stop for just a moment. We read this so fast. Did you see that it said us? Who's God talking to? Let us. Is he talking to the animals? No. Is he talking to the stars? No. Who's he talking to? God is talking to himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all in the mix. They're all in the middle, and they're talking and having fellowship with each other. John chapter 1 clarifies for us that Jesus is actually present in the creation of the world. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes into how the the Word created all that there is and all that you see. Now follow this, let us make man. Why did God create man? Why did God create humans? You need to understand this theology. Do not let yourself get caught up. God did not make man. God did not make women. God did not make people because he was lonely. God was not lonely in himself. God did not need you. God did not need me. He was not absent of anything. In the Godhead, he had perfect communion. It's a great word, isn't it? Perfect communion. He had everything he needed. He was not lonely. All he did was say, let us make man, not because we're lonely and not because we need somebody to talk to, but let's make man to demonstrate our glory, to have some more fun for our good pleasure. Are you following this? Because I want to make sure you do not slip into erroneous theology where you think that you're the center of the universe. God is the center. God was lacking nothing. And in the Godhead, he had perfect communion. 
Now, here's where it gets important. He said, let us make man, how? In our image. What does that mean? Let us make man with a likeness like us. He will not know everything. He cannot know everything. He's going to be finite. We are infinite. But let us make man in such a way that he is going to be like us. To be able to interact with us. To have a vertical communion with the God of the universe. Are you following this? He makes it where you and I, as humans, part of our intricate design is to have communion with the God of the universe. This is amazing because it allows for us to talk to him and him to talk to us. Isn't that amazing? Now watch. Go to chapter 2 now. Genesis chapter 2. God looks at all of his creation, says, this is fun, this is good, this is beautiful. He calls it all good. And in Genesis chapter 2, watch what he says. Verse 18, then God said, Genesis 2, 18, then God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper or a companion fit for him. Now, let me ask you something. This is important to catch. What was missing in Adam's life? Was he missing communion with God? The answer is no. He had that. He was interacting with God, right? Was he missing sexual pleasure? Is that what he's talking about here? Is he? What he's missing is a companion. He's missing communion with the horizontal. Do you see this? The animals couldn't give it to him, but human relationships were missing and he did not have, and he could not have the communion that he was designed to have because he did not have a horizontal partner to commune with. You tracking with this? Nod your heads. Are you tracking? Okay. Because I have to explain it all over again. This is so foundational for us to get to where we need to go. He is making sure God is looking around. He says, oh, wait, He's missing this last part. This last part, he's designed to be have communion with me, but he does not have the person to be in communion with. Now, we might use the word friendship. He does not have an ability to commune, to interact, to have friends with somebody else. He needs that other companion. It's been said that sometimes husbands begin to start thinking like that they're God's gift to their wife. But let's be real honest. When Adam sees Eve, he, is, he responds in such poetry. This is my gift. This is the one in whom God has given me. It actually completes me. Now, that's foundational. It's friendship. So here's where we have to go now. Now I have to begin to build for you the idea of communion and friendship. Because what Paul is doing in Ephesians 5 is he is saying that the Husband-wife relationship is the primary and the best and the highest of all human relationships. And in order to get there, you need to understand friendships. Because even in our culture, we talk about friends, but we often misunderstand how you have friends. So let me walk you through this. All right, Liz, we're going to put up on the, on the top here. We're going to put a drawing. Now, I did, we did the drawing this way so that I, you could actually read it. 
I've had some people say they can't read my handwriting and I was devastated. All right, so we're gonna put this up here. Now, here we, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna do, develop a triangle for you and I'm gonna talk about what it means to have a good friend. How do you have good friends? Then I'm gonna develop what it, uh, an average friendship is the first. Then I'm gonna talk about good friendships. Then I'm gonna talk about spiritual friendships and then I'm gonna move to the marriage friendship. Okay, so that's what I'm gonna do and I'm gonna develop this for you. Now, here's what we have. In order to have a friend at all, just an average friend, you have to have what C.S. Lewis called the secret thread. The secret thread is the deep movement of, I enjoyed this book, I enjoyed this movie, I enjoyed this art, I enjoyed this music, I enjoy um, certain novels, I enjoy this activity, I enjoy this hobby. You have to have something that you both like and has both moves you in a certain way so that you actually say we have commonality. Now, if you've ever met a Star Trek fan, anybody Star Trek fans? All right. All of a sudden you start doing this little weird finger thing. They know what you're talking about, right? The Star Trek, Star, it's just like you start, you have this common, oh yeah, we're now part of the club. You start flashing signs like, you know, this, you, people know that you might like the Longhorns, Right. You start having these secret clubs. Now, you can even have, this thread could even be a common enemy. I mean, if you, how many people like OU? See, the most of us in here, how many of you can't stand OU? Yeah, we got common, I can be your friend now. Does that make sense? We have this commonality, we have this common friendship because there's this thread that goes through. Now, 1 Samuel, David and Jonathan, the Bible tells us that their souls were knit together and they were drawn together. They were both soldiers. They were both men who fought in war, and they had this commonality, and they even had a common enemy. Who was the common enemy? King Saul, Jonathan's dad, and Saul, who was the king, was going after David. There has to be this common thread. Now, follow this. If you're going to have a friendship at all, it has to start there. Now, in order to have that friendship develop into a good friendship, there's a few more things that begin to happen. Now it begins to build. And here's the next one. Timeless. Proverbs 17, 17 says this. A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. If you have a brother, you understand that. Brothers, man, they're just gonna aggravate you. Sisters, they're just gonna aggravate you. But a friend, it's timeless. It's gonna go beyond. It's gonna be in the good times, the bad times, and a good friend not just a friend, but a good friend, someone you are gonna classify as good is gonna be one who's gonna be, no matter if it's up or down, whatever the circumstances, they're gonna stay with you and it's gonna become timeless. Number three, the next one, truth. An element of a good friend, they have to be involved with truth. Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend, if they're considered a good friend, will do what? They will tell you the truth. They will share the truth with you even when you don't like it, even when it's hard, even when it's too much and you don't wanna hear it. But a good friend cares more about you than actually necessarily just hurting your feelings. They will tell the truth. Number three, they will actually be together with you. Proverbs 27 and verse 17, it says this, iron sharpens iron and so one man sharpens another. They will say, hey, I will tell you the truth, but not only will I tell you the truth, I'm gonna be with you, I'll be together with you, and I'm gonna make you better because I'm in your life, I will help you through this so that you become the best you possible. That's a good friend. Are you following this? Now, typically, 
typically that's kind of where we stop and that's where we, we don't go much further. But there's this new element that I want to make sure you understand, and it's a spiritual friendship. And the spirit, spiritual friendship not only combines the thread, the common thing, it also combines the good friend, but the spiritual friendship actually begins to build even higher and takes you to a new level. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior today, can I just, I'm not trying to exclude you, but I want you to hear there is a new level when you actually have been forgiven by your, of your sins by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It begins to open up an entire new world. And you are able to live the way the designer of your body and the designer of your soul has designed you to live. And you're able to go to a whole new level. And this spiritual friendship is something that's so unique that many times even Christians who have been Christians for 10 or 20 years, many times have never even crossed into this realm because it actually requires another level of authenticity and deepness. But here it is. To move into the spiritual level is transparency. Transparency, James tells us, James chapter five and verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. To move into spiritual friendship, not only are you good friends, but now you begin the process of confessing to them and saying, hey, listen, I'm struggling in my life and here's where I'm struggling and here's my sin. Those besetting sins that you keep trying to hide from everybody else, this is now the movement in which you say, okay, God, here I am. I'm gonna lay it before my friend and I need a friend who's actually gonna come with me. And it says, confessing their faults and praying one for another so that you may be healed. The reason many of you, the many times why Christians can never break the besetting sin, the sin that consistently breaks them and they fall on and they give into over and over again is because they never crossed into spiritual friendship and they actually confessed and they invited a friend into their life and said, I want freedom. I want freedom and I want out of this brokenness and I'm tired of living in this sin that keeps destroying me. And often, you can go as a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and never even get healing, and you're still dealing with the same sin that you've been dealing with since you were a teenager. And that's a shame, because in the power of the cross, in the power of the cross, you should actually be set free, and that sin should no longer dominate your life, right? Because his power is actually greater, but you cannot just keep playing with it. You have to invite a spiritual friend to come in. Now, here's the next one, transcendent. There are too many verses for me to actually begin to just pull one. So I'm just going to call it transcendent. And here's what it basically is about. Where your friend begins to develop you in such a way that it sharpens and helps you on your spiritual process, your spiritual growth. The Bible calls it sanctification. The process of being set apart, the process of actually growing to becoming more like Christ. This is the one another's where you begin to one another each other, where you love one another, you bear one another's burdens, you care for one another, you serve one another, all the one another passages in the, in the New Testament. And it begins to build out your faith. And so what happens is this, in the spiritual friendship, it begins to transcend this world and now you begin to sharpen somebody in such a way that you're aggravating them to good works, to go further in their faith. Now, that's spiritual friendship. And let me just encourage you, if you've never experienced this part of the Christian life, you've missed an enormous blessing. Now, here's what's happened up until this point. Every one of these things have built up. Are you seeing it? 
You don't have a spiritual friend unless you've actually first started off with a common thread. You can't have a spiritual friend unless there's actually been the other development of a good friendship. Are you following? Now we're going to add the next part. And the next part is this marriage friendship, which Paul is pushing us in Ephesians 5 to be all in, totality, everything that you've got, everything that you are, to be all in. Now watch what happens. In Proverbs chapter 2, there's a passage where the, the writer is talking about a wife who has been in a marriage relationship, but now she begins to, to run off to another husband and another person, not another husband. She, she begins to commit adultery. In Proverbs 2, verse uh, 17, it says this, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of God. Here's a very interesting word. It says the companion of her youth. That word begins to transform and talk about the marriage relationship in a whole new level. In a day and age in which the culture said that marriage was about a bargain, marriage was about trying to acquire, a day and age in which you paid the father-in-law to actually marry, a day and age in which marriage was used for the convenience of maybe aligning power and political powers. The writer of Proverbs actually speaks here and he says, she forgot the companion. And here's the word for companion, ready? Special, confident, or best friend. And Ephesians 5 moves us into this next realm where you now say this, all of those other areas are gonna be active in my life and now I'm bringing you into my special confidence, my best friend. I'm gonna be all in. I'm gonna give you all, all the cards are gonna be on the table. Everything I am, I'm putting it out there. You're gonna know. Now, let's talk for just a minute. Let's now begin to get to the practical application. When you get married, I mean, you're so in love. It's just it's that euphoric, I can't believe she's marrying me. And you're just excited to get married. And then you get married and then all of a sudden things begin to happen. You see her without makeup. You see her with her hair messed up and you're going, whoa, what happened, right? And then all of a sudden she begins to look at you and go, whoa, you have anger. You've never spoke to me like this before. And now you begin to live out. And what begins to happen is you get married and you come under the same roof. And now you begin to look at each other and say, you're not the person I married. And he's saying, you're not the person I married. And you both look at each other and you're going, we're strangers and we don't even have a clue who each other are. You ever been there? What happened is this. You looked across the table and now you're going, where did you come from? Who are you? What has happened is this. You've moved into the realm where now everything's out. And the things that you used to cover, the things that you got really good at, are now being exposed. And she now says, you know you do this. And you're going, there's no way I do that. And now you're exposed like you've never been before. Because before this, you've been able to trick everybody else. Before this, you've gotten really good at even lying to yourself. Hello? You are the best liar to yourself. Nobody lies to you more than you lie to yourself. And you've lied to yourself and you begin to lay it out and you say, wait a minute, that's not who I am. And she's going, yes, that's how you are. And you're going, I can't believe you would do that. And she's going, well, this is me. This is how you married me. Now, how do we get there? Paul is moving us to this point 
where he says, you're all in. And you're gonna be all in. And men, you're gonna sacrifice. Women, you're gonna actually rank higher. And you're gonna work through this. But in order to do that, what has happened is this. Paul, in Ephesians 5, gave us a principle, and we just run over it so often, and we just kind of put it in. This is the order it's supposed to happen. Ephesians 5, verse 26 says this. Sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water. The marriage relationship is to combine all those other levels of friendship so that when you get into the marriage relationship, you have the most precious communion that you've ever had. That no other communion, no other relationship will give you the communion that the marriage relationship will have. And it should be sanctifying you and creating a process for you to become more like God. You see, my wife, when she calls me out and she says, Heath, you have blind spots? And I say, no, I don't. The very definition of a blind spot is what? You don't know it. You ever been driving in your car and you look both ways and then you pull out and next thing you know, a car swerving around you and honking at you? It's a blind spot. You don't know you have it. And in marriage, the way it's been designed is for you to come into communion. And the more you come into communion, the more things are gonna be revealed and it's gonna require you to go through the process of actually confessing, telling the truth to each other. Did you see that? And going through the process of weeping together and saying, I'm sorry, that's what, I, I can't believe I'm doing that. And you go through the process of transforming so that you become what God has created you to be. Now, this is radically different than the way we approach dating. The way we teach dating to teenagers, the way we teach dating in our culture, the way we talk about marriage is this. It's all about the erotic feelings of love and romanticism. And as long as there's the erotic feelings of love and romanticism, we're good. We're in love. And that's what love's all about. We started in, in, in high school with prom. You get dressed up. And this is what love is all about. And then we keep going from one event to the next event. You get into college. And it's one event after the next event. You watch movies. You watch the way in which TV presents love. It's all about this erotic movement in which you say, ah, yes, we're in love. And we go from one event to the next event. The problem, you get married and several weeks in, several years in, she's not dressing up anymore for you. He rarely talks to you. The erotic love is gone. Now you're tired. Now you're worn out. Now there's kids in the mix. Now there's a job in the mix. And now it doesn't feel like you're in love anymore. Are you, are you hearing this? It doesn't feel like you're in love anymore. And so what society tells you is that you're not in love if you don't feel like you're in love. And the reason you should never get married is because once you get married, then you're not gonna feel like you're in love anymore. And that's the way we've defined love. We flipped it upside down. So a, a couple, a man, a man will go looking for a wife, he'll go looking for a date, and he looks around the room, he'll see 10 ladies, and he'll he quickly remove seven of them because up oh, they are too tall, too short, not blonde, not black hair. He just starts eliminating. Ladies, we do the same. We begin to look up and we start eliminating, eliminate, eliminate. And, oh, he doesn't have enough money. Oh, he doesn't have a good enough job. And we start eliminating based on all these other things. Are you, are you tracking with me? And what we have missed is this. We've missed the commonality that we should share. 
We've missed the friendship and developing a good friendship. We've missed how to be all in because we don't know how to commune with each other. And so what happens is this, we get into a marriage. It doesn't feel like we're in love anymore. He's not doing that. She's not doing this. Now listen to me, watch what happens. Ready? And then what we begin to do is say, that's a stranger. I don't know him. I don't know her. And what we begin to do is this. We begin to look for friendships, people who will satisfy these other things outside of our marriage. So we find people who have a commonality. So we'll go golfing more with them. Or, hey, we'll go shopping more with them. Or now I need to stay later at work because that actually gives me purpose. I find friendships there. I now start vacationing without my spouse because I don't really like to be around her anymore. Are are you tracking with this? And so as we started the dating process, we never went through the commonality. We never developed the good friendships. We never even went into spiritual friendships. We never moved through the process. So when it comes to marriage, all of a sudden we think we're just out of love because we don't know each other. So some of you saying, okay, Heath, I hear you. Okay, how do we deal with this? I mean, we look across and we're really out of whack. We're not, how do we, we have marriage problems. One of the first things to do is you have to start back at the very bottom and start working through common friend, a commonality. What do you like to do together? Well, she watches the weirdest movies. I understand, guys. Well, she, you know, she doesn't like the, you know, to blow them up stuff. You know, it's just, I hear you. She doesn't like to go hunting with me. Okay. Well, I don't like to shop. Okay. What is it that gave you a common thread? What gives you that passion in your heart? What gives you a passion in her heart? Where can you find some commonality to begin to develop the friendship again? And you have to start there. And you begin working back through. Here's what it means to be a good friend. I'm gonna actually tell her the truth. I'm gonna actually be right there with her. I'm gonna be transparent with my life. And you have to start walking back through what it means to be a friend. Then you have to get to the point of being a spiritual friend. Guys, let me ask you this. How many of you have actually ever spent time talking to your wife and confessing where you've made mistakes? Not because she forced you, because I heard several guys go, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> Did it last week because she forced you. How many times have we actually walked through it? We don't even treat our wives as spiritual, confident friends. And yet Paul is pushing us in Ephesians 5 that your spouse is to be your best friend in which you are willing to go all in for. Do you see it? You were designed for communion. You were designed by God to have communion, not only here vertically with him, but horizontally with others. And your spouse is the highest place for communion, fellowship, friendship. And if it's not happening there, you're missing out on what marriage is designed for. The marriage friendship. The marriage friendship. If your spouse is not your best friend, then what you need to begin to do today is say, I want to be in process for her to be my best friend. That's the place you have to start. She has to become the highest priority. More than any other person you want to share things with, it's gotta be her, it's gotta be him, all right? Second, let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior? 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you will never be able to move forward more fully. You see, Jesus Christ is one who makes it all possible. More than that, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you to bring you salvation so that you can have communion with God. You've been separated from God and you felt it. And you've been separated from him. And God is saying, I want you and I want to interact with you and I want you to know me. He will fill that gap. And it starts by saying, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me to pay for my sins. And Jesus, I believe you are now living. Jesus, I want you to be the leader of my life. Starts there. Now, the last thing is this. Men, ladies, can you honestly say that you're helping your spouse's spiritual life. The process of sanctification. Men, it's your calling. Ladies, it's your calling. Are you helping that develop? Are you helping their faith grow? If not, then this week, the challenge is how can I begin to help their faith grow? Because that's part of this marriage friendship.